You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, hello. Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and uh, this is a Indie Talk Week, so that means I have my good buddy and co-founder with me today on this conversation, Nicholas Bugs. Say hello to What's up, folks? Good to be back. That's right. And this week, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting time, and I say that because uh, we're starting to see light, major light at the end of the tunnel with the pandemic and um, and you're starting to see some big some big names make big bets. So we see um, John David Washington's Tenet, Christopher Nolan's Tenet film coming out this summer, and they're making a big gamble that people will come out to the theater in droves and watch that film because it's going to be so awesome. I mean, the trailer looks great. Um, and so I, we, you know, I thought, and, and I know you're with me on this, Nick. We thought that this would be a good talk to maybe, I'm not saying this will be the last pandemic COVID-19 related indie talk that we do, but in case that it is, we want to sort of sum up, you know, what it's meant. It's so fascinating, actually, Nick, to follow uh, what has transpired uh, as we've gone through it over the last three or four months here. But before we get into the main conversation today, uh, a little bit of housekeeping and, and an announcement. Um, so years ago, we uh, introduced a concept called the filmmaker startup. And it's a belief that we've had uh, from the beginning that an independent film really is just a startup company uh, that's looking for angel and venture capital, p- potentially, uh, but mostly angel angel investing and the founders are the producers and the directors. They link arms with, with investors and, and sort of uh, ride uh, their product, which to an IPO and an IPO in this case would be the uh, purchase and distribution of the film as a wide release. And of course, just like in the tech startup world, um, Nine out of 10 of those are going to fail, and one of them is going to be a unicorn. And that's kind of the idea. And so what we thought was, is how could we express, because we, we haven't talked about it a few times, and we've given some details, but we've never really gone deep in one of our main, uh, in one of our main areas rather of expertise, which is uh, investing and investing in film. And uh, the lessons and traps and, and um, upsides and um, optimism you have to have and different types of things uh, that we could talk about judgment um, that goes along with investing. And so starting next week, I believe it could be next week or the week after, but starting this month, I should say, we'll have these little bite sized uh, tidbits uh, delicious little content morsels for you to 
uh, chew on. We won't take too much of your time away, uh, but we'll drop those throughout the week. Uh, you can hear them, get a little bit of wisdom as a producer. So producers that listen to this will benefit. Uh, and if you're an executive producer or looking to fund a film, these, this will be for you. And this will be the Filmmaker Startup Series. It'll be on the same podcast channel. It'll come right through Make It. And um, we're really looking forward to this. Uh, the content we have prepared is going to be awesome, Nick. Yeah, I think that, uh, like you mentioned, this has been a philosophy of ours for a very long time. And it's one of those that we, I think we always, I won't say preach, but we always try to um, make sure that that philosophy shows up on the projects that we're on. Uh, because it's a huge gap, as we see it, in the independent film world, where I think independent filmmakers forget that this is a business, you know, and they focus so much on the art that, you know, that other half, the business side you know, really hits them in the face when they get to the distribution side of things. And at that point, for most, it's way too late. You know, they haven't done the due diligence. They haven't built their startup from scratch. Uh, they've just built a product. They didn't build a business around the product. And yeah, come distribution time, it's, um, like I said, it can be a shock to their system uh, when they're not picked up for whatever reason. There's plenty of those we can get into. Or they are picked up uh, for distribution and they don't have the things to actually get their product out into the world. You know, just because a distributor buys it and puts it on a platform doesn't necessarily mean that people know about it, right? That's the business side of filmmaking that so many indies, uh, indie filmmakers forget about or they neglect. So, so yeah, it's a, it's very near and dear to our hearts, and it's something that you know we bring with uh, with us to every project that we're on. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. There's a saying in tech which is. Uh, you didn't build a product, you built a feature of another product. And sometimes that happens in startups where you realize two years into your project, you really have just been building a feature that that's already in another product. Um, we saw this kind of happen in reverse to Snapchat where they had built this social network that Instagram essentially just turned into a feature. Um, and uh, since then, Snapchat's diversified sort of their product quite a bit to stay competitive, but that that was a big hit to Snapchat when it first happened. And I think the same thing can happen in film where you can work on a film that you think is the product, uh, but it's really just a scene in a, in a, <laughs> <laughs> a scene or two in uh, what should have been a, a bigger, better feature film. Uh, and, and that's another thing that, that this will help you hopefully with as an investor or as a producer, as we roll out, um, we were asked, um, a week ago as we were being brought into, uh, potentially be on a production team. What do we bring to the table? What do we bring to this project? And the number one thing that comes to my mind is judgment because like you said, Nick, the, uh, creative side, uh, doesn't want to do the bit. It's not even that they can't do it. It's that they don't enjoy it. It's not pleasurable to them to do and think about the dollars and cents and the business side and the, and the dealings of other people while they're trying to create art. Um, the producers do that to a degree as well. But a lot of times when you have a first time director on an indie film or a second time director on an indie film, they have first time or second time producers as well. And usually the director and producers might be best friends or something like that. And they're going to be sort of sycophants of one another. And that's when you'll need an outside team 
that can provide you the judgment you need to make solid, rational decisions um, that will curb uh, the optimism you have to have in order to make something as big and complicated as a movie. Yeah, and I think that that creative authenticity is a big challenge. You know, this idea that, you know, as an artist, as a creative, you know, you need to be pure in your art and some of the business side of things, you know, shouldn't get in the way or it shouldn't, um, you know, change the way that you're doing your art. You know, it, it shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be about the business. Um, but I think that's the part again, that indie filmmakers forget especially as they desire to be the unicorn or they desire to get picked up by a distributor. It's like, they forget that distributors are businesses. You know, these, these aren't people who are just, you know, happy about your art. You know, these are businesses that need to make profits and you know, your film is a product that a business is supposed to be selling, right? It doesn't stand on its own. So I think that's the part that, you know, it's like, yes, you can be creative. You can have an authentic and unique voice, uh, but you have to understand that everything after that film is about the business. So you got to be prepared for it. You know, you got to have something uh, likely bigger than the product itself that you're selling uh, because even your audience doesn't just want a film. They want something bigger than that, that you're selling, whether it's, you know, you're, you're selling into um, a social movement, you know, you're selling into a community, you're selling into a cause, you're selling into a genre that is very specific, uh, you know, where the audience is following everything within that genre. You know, you have to be tuned in, um, you know, from the business side of things to understand how you're going to hit your market. You know, again, it's not just your audience, it's your market. So I think that's, again, like you mentioned about what we bring to the table, that's always the side that we bring is just that, Hey, you got to think about this as a business from day one. Uh, if you want to penetrate the market, not just reach an audience in order to make a profit with your product. Yeah. It's really interesting that, that you say that too, because we always think in film George Lucas, right? So we right away think George Lucas, that was the guy who really cracked the egg in terms of selling IP outside of his film to, to make himself uh, whole. Um, but, you know, there's one person that I think also changed the game in business and it translates to every kind of business, including film. And I think that was Blake Mikoski of, of Tom's. It's the guy who started Tom's Shoes. Since he did that whole thing where you buy a pair of shoes and he sends a pair to someone in need in Africa, that turned the entire world upside down. And I don't think he gets, I mean, he gets credit for it, but he doesn't get enough credit. I don't think enough people know his name. Like to me, he's the guy that made it where every single new business has to have some philanthropic arm to their business or some community outreach that they do in their business as a standard bearer of them being a modern business, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, I think that, you know, even for film, even think about George Lucas or, you know, any of the, the big box folks, I mean, you got to really think about what they're selling and to whom they're selling. Um, you know, again, it's not just about the art in the films. It's about these audiences that are just hungry for this content, 
right? And I think that for independent filmmakers, for a lot of them thinking about the authenticity of their art, I think they have it a little bit in reverse where they're the ones hungry for other people to consume their art, but they haven't done the due diligence to make other people hungry. You know, so I think some of those, you know, we call them the big box. Well, you're, you know, I think a lot of indies also decry some of the big box, you know, tactics or antics. You know, it's like, well, they're just making this remake and they're doing this. Well, I mean, they're making billions of dollars because that's actually what the the market, I was going to say audience, but that's what the market wants. Right. So they're selling product into a, a hot market. Whereas I think independent filmmakers are often selling to a very cold market uh, because they haven't touched on what that market wants. Yeah. And we have an interview coming up with uh, the wonderful Alan Powell, and he talks about what it took to sell uh, his film to Netflix. And I think it's just going to floor our listeners. So that'll be out in a few weeks and it'll be definitely worth worth everyone's listen. Um, but you mentioned about um, earlier about the business of film and that it is definitely a business and they have to profit. And one of the things that um, was really on my mind this week that I wanted to talk to you about was the fact that um, that might just be smoke and mirrors um, to a degree. Uh, every single, every single um, streaming company in China so Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, they all burn cash to the tune of 400 million plus every single quarter, I believe. Um, and, and I might be wrong, I might be per year, but the number is, is large. And they all view um, film as a lost leader. And there's rumors that Amazon's film business is essentially the same way, where they just burn cash and they make up for the losses in the other parts of their business that their film business sort of gives them expo- gives customers exposure to. Plus, there's the data when you watch a film that they can use and try to profit off as, off of as well. But if Amazon didn't have a, a shop, an online shop, or Audible and or their cloud services, they might not be able to really afford um, <laughs> to, to to be a, a streaming service in, in this competition. I think. What's happening largely is that to be competitive at the top levels, these very, very top streamers, uh, the Netflixes, Amazons, uh, HBO Max now, we could say that in the the three I mentioned in China, Apple TV Plus, um, you almost have to have some sort of ancillary business or just debt finance the whole thing where you're just getting, you're just saying, look, uh, to, to VCs and banks, you're saying, I have 180 million subscribers. Those subscribers aren't going anywhere. They're into the habit of my service. And we can use that 180 million subscribers however we want in the future. And and that there creates an opportunity for future profits. So in the meantime, please loan me $400 million so I can continue to keep my business afloat, even though it hasn't been profitable since it's since its arrival. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. Cause you think, you know, you so say you can't keep your business afloat. Is this, like you said, is this an arm of the business? You know, is this, 
you're leveraging this content for for other purposes but you know if you don't have that content then you can't leverage it for those purposes right you know it's like you're you know i've always been one to say that you know when i look at you know amazon specifically like yeah they don't necessarily need to make content and they don't necessarily need to acquire the content but you know streaming is a thing now it's a, it's a it's a big thing so hey let's let's get into that business what does that mean for us oh okay well we can actually generate a lot of uh, subscriber loyalty right through the other products that they're selling um, mm-hmm. just by having this offering right so i go to amazon now for everything right and then you create this ecosystem around Amazon that now gives you everything that you could ever need. And I think that's the idea. I mean, we've also talked about, you know, like you mentioned, it's like, okay, now I, I went and I bought, you know, um, a plunger from Amazon. I bought a book from Amazon and I bought lights from Amazon. I bought movies from Amazon. Everything that you buy is a data point, you know, on you. And as any company, any organization has multiple data points on you, then they're able to even manipulate how you operate and how you act so that you then buy more of these things from them. So being part of the ecosystem allows them to keep you in the ecosystem, you know, which is, it's a, it's a crazy thing. So, um, you know, I think it's, you know, when we talk about when we're talking to our audience, right, which is the independent filmmakers, like, what does this really mean? Like, if they're leveraging this content in this way, if it's not really about just about the content, like we say with Netflix, like Netflix, you know, with all the subscribers, was it 15 million subscribers were new, net new in April, you know, or May timeframe during all this stuff that went down? Yeah. Um, you know, what does it really mean to them? I know it's 15 million times your monthly fee that you're paying, but what else are they doing with all that data? You know, how long you watch what you watch, what you're watching on a regular basis, your preferences for actors, your preferences for types of content, you know, all of this stuff that they can feed back into Hollywood, you know, and sell to them just to say, hey, look, this is what people want so that then Hollywood can go and make the things and then put them back on Netflix. So there's this whole you know, again, this ecosystem, you know, they're leveraging data and not just putting films out there. So again, for the independent filmmaker, you know, where does it put them? And and I tend to think, you know, with the big boys and girls, you say the Hulus, the Amazons and Netflix of the world, I'm like, you know, they don't need independent content. They're making it more difficult, right? Because especially now that they're competing against each other, um, you know, for views, especially now that, you know, in this current state, we're all at home, you know, we're doing fewer things outside of our homes, whether that's watching movies or playing golf, you know, or going to the local bar, we're like, we're just eating up the streaming content like crazy, then they're, these companies are competing even more, right? So that means that they're going to want the best of the best content. They're not going to be looking to just create more content for people to consume, which is, you know, one option, right? Go out there and get a bunch of cheap content so that you can always have content. No, they're in competition. They got to make sure that their brands, you know, stay strong. So they're going out there and they're getting the best of the best content. And I feel like this time, even though it seems like it should have been a boon for independent filmmakers because they can get, you know, you would think that there was this glut uh, for content, 
and a glut of content. No, they're still sticking to Netflix originals and, you know, things that they're making or big box type things. So I feel like it's, it's in some parts of the market, it's actually making it more difficult for indies. Yes, I know. Yes, I know. In, in my opinion, um, it's fascinating to watch that. So that I'll say, I mean, what's happened with the pandemic I mean, we've talked about it before and to your point about data with Amazon, that was the kind of the idea or Apple same way. Like that was the idea of them going out and buying big box theaters was that they could leverage data if they did that. Um, we'll see what happens. Um, obviously, you know, you know, the big you know, um, box theaters are, are debt financed. They can take on more more uh, money. And then stay afloat and, and sort of beat off, you know, would be buyers if they wanted to, wanted to do that. Um, but what you're seeing really um, because of the pandemic and because people are at home, you're seeing all these market forces play out in these in this really strange way. And what you're really talking about reminds me of the quote that Mark Andreessen had, which is that software ate the world. And that's how Netflix became the biggest player in Hollywood is because data was more powerful than any other force. And because it could be leveraged and it doesn't expire and it doesn't really uh, respond to, to market trends and changes the way that almost everything else does, especially, you know, films and people's tastes and, and what's good, and what's not. But so you're seeing the market force of, OK, there's increased demand. So increased demand should mean that you should be able to fetch more money for your film if it's good. And we've seen that play out. The cost of content acquisition has never been higher, and it's the reason why streamers can't be profitable, because they need that top-line content to bring in subscribers. Uh, on the other hand, demand for content has never been higher, along with the combination of there's never been more streamers. So now we're, you know, well over 200 different streaming competitors, if you will, or companies out there. And so you would think that because of that, that would mean a greater opportunity for independent filmmakers uh, to get their content purchased and distributed. And that's been true as well. Um, but not in the way that we would want, which means we want our content distributed widely, but we also want to be paid for it, uh, commensurate to the cost of the of the product being made. So if I spent $3 million on an independent film, I don't expect to make $20,000 back um, simply because I, I went through uh, streaming services that, that pay me $0.06 cents an hour, uh, you know, or $0.06 cents a view or, or, or something along those lines, right? Um but the reason why it works out that way is because so much money is allocated towards that top line content. Uh, you know, you if you want to get a stand up from Jerry Seinfeld, you got to pay him eighty million dollars. You want a stand up from Eddie Murphy, you got to pay him eighty million dollars. <laughs> you know, you want a, a, a four uh, you know four show deal from Dave Chappelle. You got to pay him $80 million. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, the money is gone. So there's no more money to, to buy. So this supports your argument in a way. There's no more money to buy those films. So you're not seeing independent films come through as top line content 
Uh, the ones that do make it are Oscar contenders, right? But I think you are seeing independent film being gobbled up by the secondary market and the and the sort of that second and third string sort of line of players, but they can't pay the independent filmmakers what they deserve. There so you go. all these market forces are happening at once and it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, it is. And and this is the the challenge again for the indie filmmaker is that again, the dream, you know, in our in our I guess in our current environment is the Netflix deal. And I feel like, you know, when we're just being real, we want to tell people, especially indies, like that is a dream. Right. That's that's not your reality right now. Let's let's not try to play that game. Let's not you know, think that I'm going to you're going to get that Netflix deal. Like what would it look like for you if you literally took that off the table as a potential option or potential outcome? Right. right? Like, like just kind of put that, you know, because we're not we're not being, you know, pessimists in this. We're, we're, we're trying to be realists and create opportunities to be optimists in different markets. Right. And I think that's what we're trying to say to the independent filmmakers. It's like, don't bang your head up against a market that isn't designed for you, but be successful in a market that is. So I think that, you know, yeah, look at that. If you didn't get on Netflix as a Netflix original or something that they're going to be pushing to people so they actually see you, how do you plan to be successful with your film? And I say Netflix because, you know, they're they're the biggest players in the game. And if you go to Amazon, you know, right now, yeah, your independent film can get on Amazon. I mean, that's relatively easy. You can do that yourself. You know, you don't even need a distributor to make that happen. So you can get out there. And if you get on Amazon, what's your plan to be successful? Right? Because Amazon isn't going to push your content to millions of people. It'll only make it available. Right. Yes. So, so people will have to find it. How do you intend for people to find your work? It's like when we, we talk to people about their stories, I'm like, well, you know, this is a really important story at this time. And, you know, you know, it's, I'm, I'm very passionate about this. OK, your passion, the story, the cinematography, everything that you did, the acting, the character development, everything you do in your film doesn't matter if no one actually sees it. Right. If they can't right. click on it, if they don't even know what exists, everything you did inside that film doesn't matter. So that's the challenge I think we're always putting in front of independent filmmakers is, you know, if no one's going to hand it to you, which is the case, they're not going to hand it to you. How do you plan on being successful? It's a tough one, you know, and and we've worked with a lot of filmmakers in, in trying to impress this upon them. You know, this is part of what we do. Uh, but that's the type of thinking that I think, especially now with what you just said about the the cost of these things going up, which then kind of, you know, hamstrings the streamers a little bit because they have to spend their money to compete that they can't and won't afford to spend money on the independent films. So independent filmmakers need to find a different way to promote their stuff. Yeah, it really reminds me of this sort of. Uh, I think the Buckminster Fuller quote that uh, you never change things by fighting the existing reality to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Obsolete. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing happen. So the big push, for example, with HBO max, like why it was in everyone's face when some people were saying, well, this is kind of trivial. Like it's just, 
HBO now with a new name and you've thrown in, you know, Warner's library, Tom Warner's library. It's, it's a little bit more than that because what the, the play that AT&T is making is that they are going to start producing movies on one side of their business because they own studios now and then taking that directly to their own streaming platform. So it's like built-in exclusivity. So they can sign up directors, actors, producers that are elite, have them make a film and run it as a day and date on HBO Max. And they have huge ambitions. I told you a few weeks ago, they had about 8 million subscribers and they've always been a premium content channel. Um, you know, where their service is, you know, fourteen ninety nine a month. They expect to get between 36 and 50, 50 million subscribers out of this play. So you're talking about 5Xing your business, essentially, and that's how they're going to do it. That's their gamble. The gamble is, will it work for us to make movies in-house, uh, tie up all the exclusivity, and then drive those films directly through HBO Max? Uh, and and will, will people sign up to see, you know, the next Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise, right? But you can only see it on HBO Max. Like, just for example, I mean, that's not really the case, but would right. you do it, you know? Yeah, and I think that, again, data is um, is very important in this game. And I think what it's really taught a lot of the streamers, because we can see it in some of the content that's being put out there, uh, when you talk about mainstream, whether it's mainstream music or mainstream uh, film, it really comes down to probably some very simple things in order to reach the mass market, right? As in, like, it's not rocket science, right? Like, you, you know, I think about, you know, Netflix has all this data on people and it's got all this, that, that. Yeah, yeah it probably all boils down to, you know, a handful of things that you need to do in order to make a film successful, right? So I think mm-hmm. that if you look at, you know, a smaller outfit, like, you know, like you said, HBO, of course, smaller versus Netflix, they're just going to leverage the model, right? The model isn't really proprietary to Netflix, not, you know, and because Amazon has their version as well. Hulu has one. They get it. They know what content people need. So if you're now providing that mass consumable content on your platform at a time when people are not going outside, right? Like I said, they're not, it's not that they're just not going to the theater. They're not doing all of the other things that they used to do that would prevent them from sitting in front of a screen all day. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, they can, you know, five X or even 10 X their subscribers because people are leveraging streaming as their primary form of entertainment. So they're just using the model and it's a simple model to get people to watch. So yeah, I think it's going to be five X, 10 X potentially. Um, and it's, like I said, it's not, it, it probably won't be difficult for them to do. And it's funny because the competition is, is already afoot. So you have, this gamble by AT&T who owns HBO and um, Warner. And, and I, we talked about that. And then there's the gamble on the other side, which is happening with, with, with the BBC, right. And then other organizations like them who are signing up 
with Watermelon, which is a uh, an app that's an offshoot of ByteDance, uh, which owns TikTok. And their deal is that they're going to try to create a new model for long form content through the app Watermelon. And so it really creates another distribution stream, uh, stream and avenue for BBC films. So they did, so they don't have to rely on the streaming services and they don't have to rely on theaters that aren't open right now due to, due, uh, to the pandemic because so much of the, of, of UK films profits come from the box office. Like I think 80%, um, same in China. Uh, so when those places are closed, they quickly look for another option and, I think that's when you uh, had asked me the question before this talk, you know, what would, you know, you know, what would happen? What if there were no internet? Like what if this pandemic happened in 1985? <laughs> Man, I remember I was like, what if it happened 10 years ago? Like it's, it'd be like the end of film. You know, like he just all of it was shut. The theaters were shut down. There'd be no mechanism for them to get the content to people. And that would be it done. Yeah, because I'm trying to think about, you know, maybe what would happen. I like to think that human human beings um, and especially um, as as much trouble as as sort of 2020 is uh, revealed about our country. Um, there's no better place in the world still than America if you have an idea and you're willing to work to build it. And there's something about that spirit that tells me that people would have figured something out. Like maybe, maybe what would have happened in the eighties is they would have taken their movies and immediately burned them to DVD and sold them or VHS. What do you think? That probably would have done it because people would have ran to this. If they could go to the store, they felt comfortable to go to the store to get it because yeah. it wasn't Amazon. So they can't just get this stuff mailed to the house. Right. That's what I was just going to say. You, you, <laughs> they're not running. They're not running to the store. <laughs> it's a, I'm trying to, I'm like literally racking my brain to like try to think about what life was like when I was a kid in yeah, 1985. Know, right? Oh yeah. Like, like what, what, what could actually be possible? Would they be forced to run the movies on broadcast te- television? Maybe that's what they would have done. They would have just ran them on TV. Yeah, but I guess the challenge is, is that I don't think they had a distribution deal. You know what I'm saying? Like that, how would they work that out? And even how yeah. how do they profit from a situation like that, right? Because they'd be begging the networks to put it on. They, I mean, No, you know what they'd do? They'd go through pay-per-view on cable. But again, no internet so that contract process is going to take forever. You yeah. can't just you can't just send over an Adobe signed contract and say e-sign. You're right. <laughs> and there's no there's no redlining the contract and you tracking changes. Exactly. And, you know. and that that would have been I guess I don't even know even if that were to be possible, it would not have been possible in the time frame needed to keep it all afloat. Right. Now, okay, so the one okay, so here we go. This is a fun this is such a fun question, but it's like Here's here's the caveat. Big box theaters, I need to look it up for to, to verify. But big box theaters should have been much stronger in the 80s, financially. Because so many more people were going to the theater back then. Was, um, you're saying that they should have been able to hold out at least for a while. 
right. until we got back to normal. Right. Or some semblance the, it, of normal. Right. And that, and that the cost of ac- acquisition was so much smaller. So like the debt you have or that you're holding, even in 1985 dollars, right, would have been less um, simply because the expectation isn't there, right? The technology isn't there. We didn't have the matrix. We didn't have uh, Avengers Endgame. So no, no consumer is expecting a film, you know, where Thor uh, comes out of the sky. Uh, it's, you know, it's like the films just cost less to make. And so, so the studios are holding less debt and they have all this legacy money from the 40s through the 80s. So, yeah, I think maybe they would have been able to, been able to hold on a little bit longer while they could have worked out the details and I think the economy in general, you know, like the economy wouldn't be teetering on whether or not theaters stayed open in, in a way, you know? So you everything think the theater, you think the theaters would have financed the studios? Oh, maybe so. And they've done it in the past. I mean, I, I feel like, I feel like the big box theaters have had as much or more power than studios since the beginning, just about like, or since the beginning of the theater, since, they sort of had that power grab in the second wave of the film industry um, when 90% of the population was going to the movies three times a week. Uh, those were boom days. And like I said, you know, big box theaters are spending money from 40 years ago, probably. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. Cause that's just so much money coming in on a regular basis. Um, and again, you have to like go through the whole conversation of inflation and, okay, I went to a movie back then. So what it cost a quarter, but you know, <laughs> what was, what was a quarter worth in 1940? <laughs> right. you know I mean? Your daddy also made $3 a week. That's right. But he still put dinner yeah, on the table. Yeah. We would, I would honestly love to have, you know, somebody go through that process of kind of doing the appropriate levels of research to figure out like, yeah, if this had happened in 1985, you know, what are the two or three most probable outcomes? That'd be awesome. I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd read that. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do it on our popular blog that you can find and read at bonsai.film <laughs> slash blog. And <laughs> how, many, how many posts do we have up now, Nick? I think we're up to about 35 now. Yeah, so 35 blog posts, all film-related, all for the independent filmmaker. Uh, we really haven't spoken about it to the level and degree that we ought to, um, which has just been <laughs> so in our nature, we'll, we'll probably change that. We'll probably change our nature uh, in 2020. Uh, <laughs> but but do go out and read them. They're great reads, and and uh, maybe there will be a 36th blog post up in the near future uh, that goes over uh, the idea of what would it, that is if we don't get front front ran by somebody who has like a 50 person staff that hears this, but. <laughs> What would have happened if the pandemic hit, COVID-19 hit in 1985? Uh, what would have happened to the big box theater? So, yeah, I, I can't wait to start working on that with you. That that would be a fun thing to do. For sure. Um, and what else has been fun is this conversation, Nick. Yeah, man, always, dude. This is how we do it. I felt like I was going to go into a song right there. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the people always get the Montels confused. Montel Jordan and Montel Williams. Montel Williams? No way. Yeah. I, can't, I can't believe that. One of them is like six foot 30 and the other one's not. So, 
<laughs> well, they don't get them confused when they look at each other side by side, but they but they can't remember which one is which. Which one is which? Gotcha. Is the host Montel Jordan or is the singer Montel Jordan? Right. Nah. The singer is Montel Jordan. He, he is, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. But yeah, man, this is great. I appreciate the time. It's it's awesome to talk talk indie with you. And uh, you know, hopefully we 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 entertain and we educate it all at the same time because um you know, if anything, we want to keep it light, keep it positive, keep it moving forward. That we we do talk about the challenges for the indie filmmakers, but we always kind of come around and say, okay, now what are we going to do next? You know, what are our options? How do we think differently in order to survive either in the in in the current market or the market that is to be? So it's kind of like always just thinking about you know staying one step ahead and sometimes stepping out of the market you don't belong in. So yeah. So anyway, great conversation, yeah. man. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a great point because I think at the end of the day, we're looking hopefully to be part of a movement that creates a new model where uh, we we as independent creatives get fair value for our work. Yep. Um, I mentioned it earlier about our website, but if you want to uh, learn more, you can go to www.bonsai.film. You can also engage with us. Uh, we would love that on social media, on Instagram and on Twitter. We are at underscore Bonsai Creative. On Twitter, you can talk to me and Nick directly. Uh, Nick, your handle is at Nicholas Bugs, um, and mine is at Flame in Your Heart, and your is spelled U R, so Flame in U R Heart. Um, you can also find us on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative, and we'll pop right up, and you can like our page and uh, engage with us there. If you have questions, you can email them to us, like say long-form questions or a deeper conversation you want to have with us. You can send those to us at contact at bonsai.film. Nick, sign us off with the credo. Yeah, man, for sure. Be better. Be creative. Be engaged. <laughs> that, was called a, that, was, that was called a pregnant pause. Just yell, yell, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. I think you might have got a couple of our listeners pregnant just listening to you say that. Uh, <laughs> you poured a little melted chocolate all over those vocals. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> uh, Nick. I love you. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Yeah, man. We'll do it again soon. All right. All right. Peace. Peace. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It bonsai creative and the show will pop right up you can follow us on instagram and twitter at underscore bonsai creative and facebook by searching for bonsai creative and of course if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success go to www.bonsai.film and click on book us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment you have everything to gain until next time be better Be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.